often there's one homework that like stands out as my favorite or my least favorite. Mm-hmm. This week I loved all three assignments. Bangers, bangers all. Yeah. <laughs> Good evening, and welcome to Did You Do Your Homework, the pop culture podcast where we connect academic ideas to popular culture. My name is Martha Sullivan, one of your intrepid co-hosts, and today I am a snowed-in librarian. Um, I was supposed to run a practice exam tomorrow, and although we don't have snow yet, the threat of snow is so bad that my director preemptively is closing us uh, for tomorrow morning. Uh, joining me, as always, is my other co-host. Uh, I'm Pete Romberg, and I'm enjoying the first snowfall of note that Milwaukee has had all winter. Um, we've had little dustings here and there, but uh, the same snow that's threatening Martha is here right now, and there is the, the ground is now white for the like for the first time in months. Uh, and I'm excited to not have anything to do tomorrow. So if the snow is bad, I just get to stay inside and hang out and read. Uh, and today, joining us uh, as our guest is friend of the co- friend of the show, uh, and please correct me if I pronounce this incorrectly. Uh, Kim Schlesinger. Did yeah, get that's, it? that's very good. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on our show. Oh, my pleasure. <laughs> uh, Kim, tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. So I, uh, my name's Kim Schlesinger. I live in uh, Broomfield, Colorado, which is in the Denver metro area. And I'm, I work as a software engineer. Um, but I am also a teacher and educator. And I met Pete uh, when I lived in Milwaukee. And we, uh, we taught and we were Teach for America Corps members and um, became part of a really tight knit social group. Yeah, which is still kicking, which is nice. It's it's amazing. <laughs> um, you'll, you'll get a kick out of this, uh, and I, I might have to cut this from the show. Who knows? Um, but I, I'm just coming from dinner uh, at some friends who live in Patrick and Tresca's old place. So <laughs> <laughs> Keeping it in the social family. It has never left my social group, which is kind of delightful. <laughs> well, today we are going to be talking about coming-of-age stories, which I'm very excited about because it's basically my house. <laughs> um, but before we get into that, we are going to tell you all what has been stuck in our heads this week. Uh, this is whatever pop culture media um, we have consumed or thought about consuming or basically can't stop thinking about. Um, I have two because one of them's theoretical at the moment. Uh, and that is that Oscar voting just ended, but we won't know who the nominations are until next week so i have been consumed with predicting what is going to get nominated um the awards field has been bananas this year i don't know if this is something that you two care even a little bit about uh but the golden globes were uh, a show we yeah. don't swear on this podcast <laughs> so i can't tell you exactly what i thought of them um but we uh, we currently live in a world where the phrase Bradley Cooper, Oscar-winning director, 
is something that might exist. <laughs> um, so that's one thing. Um, but the more real one is that both Netflix and Hulu have blessed us by dropping competing documentaries about the 2017 disaster, the Firefest. For anybody listening who doesn't know what this is, this was a multi-million dollar scam <laughs> wherein, um, let me pull up the guy's actual name. When Ja Rule was connected to it, and there's discussion about how, how much he knew or didn't know about it all. The answer is everything. Mm, great. Billy McFarland um, and Ja Rule uh, were trying or decided that they were going to put on a luxury music festival experience. Um, they got Instagram billionaire babies to spend literally thousands of dollars on VIP ticket packages <coughs> only to show up in the Bahamas and find that the uh, luxury tent accommodations that they had paid so much money for were actually FEMA survival tents. Um, which led to several days of utter panic and chaos. Uh, the U.S. Embassy in the Bahamas got involved to evacuate these children. Um, people are being sued for millions of dollars. It was the most delightful exploitative train wreck I have ever gotten the chance to witness on social media. <laughs> and I knew that Netflix was putting out a documentary Hulu's documentary was a total surprise. No one knew about it until it dropped a couple days ago, and now I have two of them to watch. And it, um, it dropped and like Hulu's... the day before Netflix's was supposed to come out, so it was some um, yes, excellent they like them. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and uh. Hulu's so two two interesting things, and then I'll let you guys talk for a while. Um, one Hulu's documentary actually uh, has an interview with McFarland in it which the Netflix one does not. Hmm. And the Netflix one is produced by a social networking company um, that was mixed up in the financing for Firefest. So, so possibly a conflict of interest there. Just something to keep in mind. I have not yet watched them. I'm kind of waiting until I have three hours where I can watch them both back to back. Back to back. <laughs> um, I'm just so excited that we get the full story of this amazing, delightful takedown of these, you know, Instagram influencers with too much money. It did, <laughs> the whole story is one where I would have a lot of sympathy for the the people getting scammed if they weren't like millionaire babies, Instagram influencers. Uh, there's a lot of feelings of schadenfreude that I got from the whole fallout of the fire festival. Real people don't have $1,065 to spend on a like luxury tent for a three day music festival. Like right. the kind of people who are dropping that money to go Instagram how much better they are than everybody else around them. This is not a class of people that I feel all that sorry for. This is why we need 70% marginal tax rates. Uh, I'm a little <laughs> bummed that my dad couldn't get a piece of the class action lawsuit that is going to be happening. Um, 
Because that also would have been pretty delicious. <laughs> uh, Kim, what are you all about? Or what's stuck in your head? This week, I, I like what are you all about as the, uh, the go-to. No, no, we can't use that because that's from Pop Rocket. Oh. <laughs> um, so I, this week, I listened to an audiobook. It was called I Can't Date Jesus, Love, Sex, Family, Race, and Other Reasons I've Put My Faith in Beyonce by Michael Arnaud. <laughs> and it's a collection of essays uh, by Arnaud, and he does talk a lot about how he came of age as a young gay black man in Houston, Texas, how he went to Howard University and eventually moved to New York and Los Angeles. And um, some of the essays are hilarious and hysterical and like very witty uh, commentary on pop culture. Some of them are really serious, talking about um, his family and the struggles that they went through when he came out and um a lot about his sexuality and it's a great book. Uh, it's peppered nicely with both the serious and the funny, and he's a really, really excellent writer. So, um, the, he reads the audiobook as well. So that, that uh, was going to be my question. <laughs> I, I always like it when authors are able to read their own audiobooks. I, I like that too. <laughs> so who yeah, is so he? Like, I, I've never heard of, um, uh, Michael, Arsenault? Uh, I think it's Arnaud, uh, but it could be Arsenault. There's a French ending on there, so I kind of don't know what to do with it. Uh, <laughs> um, cool, yeah, I, so... think, I think he is a writer and like a freelance writer for a lot of magazines and newspapers. Okay. Um, so I suspect I've read some of his work before without knowing who he is. <laughs> mm -hmm. Cool. Well, what about you, Pete? I'm excited to hear your what's yeah. been in your head this week. So yes, I, please tell us. I, I think I started watching this this week. If not, it was last week. Uh, but I'm three episodes into the eight-episode se uh, series Killing Eve, which is a... Eight e episodes so far. Yeah, in season one. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's a uh, BBC drama by Phoebe Waller-Bridge starring Sandra Oh as... Um, an MI5 agent, uh, officer who becomes obsessed with an assassin, played by Jodie Cormer. Uh, Comer? Something like that. Um, Comer, I think? Yeah. It's incredible. Uh, Jodie Comer is, she's phenomenal in the role as a, like, total shark-eyed, clear sociopath crazy assassin <laughs> yes. uh, who has no <laughs> feelings about anything um and her eyes are like just a little bit too big for her head which makes it all even <laughs> crazy like she looks crazy in every scene she's in in a delightful way um and sandra ode deserves all the awards that one gives to tv shows i don't remember what those are exactly emmys maybe um also golden globes i think she just won a mm. golden globe oh cool nice. for this Yes. Great. Totally deserved. I um, have a, I have a question for you. Mm -hmm. Is it as gay as Tumblr tells me that it is? <laughs> I'm only three episodes in, but not knowing what Tumblr is saying, but making an educated assumption, kind of. <laughs> I I have seen the whole thing, and um, it's a little bit gay. <laughs> wonderful um, i love I oh my gosh i love the first season of that show <laughs> yeah it's it's a lot funnier than reality, i thought it would be the reality is always somewhere in between tumblr and like 
fifty percent of what right. Um, I mean, like, so in in episode three, there is a bit where she, um, uh, Villanelle, the assassin, like, is I, I don't know, like, seducing some American woman and is like literally calling her by Sandra O's name and like having her wear her clothing. So uh, that's that's pretty gay. Yeah, we're. I think it's gonna get. Like, I'm excited to see where the season ends. Um, and like I said, it's it's a lot funnier than I thought it would be. Oh, yeah. It does have some funny moments. Yeah. Um. <laughs> yeah, that one is on... How are you watching it, Pete? It's on Hulu. That's been on my... It's on what? Hulu. Oh, excellent. Yeah. That, it, like, it was on my shortlist for a while, and I'm like, I don't know how I'm going to watch it. And then it like I randomly saw that it was on Hulu, and I'm like, great, I'm putting everything else aside other than The Good Place <laughs> and focusing on this. That's exactly what I did when I saw it <laughs> on Hulu. I was like, okay, I've, my queue has been reorganized. <laughs> my, Hulu queue, my Hulu queue is very out of whack right now because The Bachelor is back. So Hulu only thinks yes. that I want to watch terrible reality TV, oh, which yes. is about 50% true. But it also means that it's not showing me like good stuff anymore. <laughs> the good my, place, yeah, Brooklyn Nine Nine. My suggestions always get really out of whack about three times a year. <laughs> uh, so we are going to take a quick break, recess. We're going to take a quick recess, and when we come back, we're going to be discussing coming of age stories. topic today is coming of age stories which has a fancy term that i am honestly not sure how to pronounce so i'm gonna let pete try was... so that i don't look bad i think it's a buildings roman but uh Perfect. i was hoping that you would know how to pronounce it kim pete, do you know how to pronounce I, it i this do not is a, this, is a, this is a true story about me I no longer, if I have never said a word out loud before, I will no longer do it because my husband makes such merciless fun of me every time I mispronounce something. <laughs> I, uh, I had a number of, of words corrected in the past, let's say, eight to ten years, uh, but I just power through anyway. Um, and in fact, Call Me By Your Name told me that I was pronouncing a Greek uh, sculptor's name incorrectly. So that's been fun. <laughs> right. So Wikipedia defines the Bildungsroman, which is how I'm going to go with it, um, as uh, a literary genre that focuses on the psychological and moral growth of the protagonist from youth to adulthood, in which character change is extremely important. Uh, and they define this as a subset of coming-of-age stories. Um, I think that all three of our homeworks could accurately fall within this. Um, and I think that I would like to start with... There's no good, like, through line in any of them, so I, anywhere sounds good. Okay, they're all going to have some good, some good commonalities for us to talk about, but I think in terms of um, 
just starting off our discussion, I think that we should start with Pete. Yeah, sounds good. Um, so I assigned the 2000 graphic novel Persepolis by Marjane Satrapi. Um, Satrapi was a young girl uh, living in Iran when the Iranian Revolution occurred, and um, the graphic novel is a memoir of her life. Uh, growing up there, eventually she is sent to slash moves to Austria um, for her teenage years, um, but eventually moves back to Iran um, for her, like, I guess young adulthood, but, like, in the sense of, like, 17 to, I'm guessing, like, 20, like, mid-20s. Um, and that that's the span of the graphic novel. Uh, the graphic novel ends with her leaving Iran for the second and final time to go to uh, move to France, where she has uh, spent the rest of her life. Um, it deals with uh, every aspect of growing up and coming of age before, like, right on the cusp of the revolution, and then... Um, both the revolution sort of highs and then lows as it turns it um, from sort of more an anti-Shah revolution into a Islamic revolution, um, the increasing repression uh, from the religious authorities, the Iran-Iraq war, um, and then a lot of, uh, you know, normal teen stuff that she is grappling with her identity, who she is, um, who her friends are as, as she is grappling all that in with all that in a foreign country where she doesn't really speak the primary language that well um and is even though she's a very um i guess outgoing person she's still from a much more conservative culture than austria is um so there's a lot of sort of culture shock that she's experiencing as she grows up there um this is also made into a movie and the movie is a almost perfect adaptation of the graphic novel i think satrapi also uh, either directed or co-directed it. It has the exact same art style and um, it is really a lovely example of taking a, a graphic novel and turning it into like a moving graphic novel uh, without doing a whole lot of changes. Um, had you guys either read or seen this before? What were your thoughts on it? Um, I had seen this movie before. Um, I hadn't read it before because sometimes there are huge gaps um in my in my graphic novel experience um but they're almost i mean they're so close yeah you you um, like you could have probably just watched the movie for this homework assignment and gotten the same effect as having like read the graphic novel um i'd like to yeah i'd like to just make mention of how striking i found the fact that it's totally in black and white um, usually, usually comics that are in black and white incorporate some kind of grayscale, mm. and this one is blocks of black and white space, mm -hmm. um, which is really interesting to me because the I, I think that the subject matter is dealing very much in shades of different things. So having the um, the art style be so stark uh, in those two tones really, I think, brought the story into sharper relief. Pun intended. <laughs> That's a good observation, Martha. Um, so I believe that this came out in three different uh, smaller books, and I had read the first one. Um, when when a she was a young kid. Ago. Yeah, when she was a young kid, and it was so 
so good. I like read it all in one sitting. Um, so I really enjoyed picking it up again and then, and getting the entire story until she leaves Iran again. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's really, it's a, it's like a beautiful book to look at. And the art is, is like Martha said, really striking. And I don't know much about, um, the history of, of war in Iran or about the revolution. So I also learned a lot about that. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I did kind of use this as an excuse to actually buy a copy of it um, because I think it is like it's one of those books where I definitely have wanted to have a copy. Like I know I'll come back to it. Um, so this was a good excuse for that. Yeah, I also I also bought a copy myself because I'm sure I'll recommend it or read it again and would like to have it around. Yeah. I really enjoyed, well, I, yes, I really enjoyed how Margie's story is not juxtaposed, because I don't think they're in conflict or being contrasted, but, like, this is a story of how she kind of falls apart Mm -hmm. and puts herself back together again, Mm -hmm. and it's happening while Iran is falling apart, so you get a really interesting interplay between her growing up and changing and not being able to handle that and all of the turmoil that Iran itself is undergoing. Which I think also contributes pretty directly to a lot of her identity crises, um, particularly in the second part of the book. I I also really enjoyed... Um primarily in the first part she does such a good job at at capturing slash remembering um like what like like the the childishness of how she was sort of interpreting everything around her um there's the bit where like her friend's father was in prison um and and was tortured and and all the rest and she was upset not because of what happened to him but because it like made her friend cooler in her eyes than like you know it's like oh his dad or her dad was in prison that's that's cool he was a real radical not like my parents um and then she was excited when she found out her uncle was also like in in prison um it's such an interesting sort of like framework in which to view everything going on around her and it also feels incredibly like accurate for a kid of that age Yeah, and is also, again, because we get her life in such a broad, like, we get such a broad arc of her life, you get to compare that reaction to, you know, after she lives in Austria and is thinking about how Austria is different from Iran and how her life is different in between each place. And just, like, this, because the... um feeling that way about her friend's parents is such a juvenile way of looking at it. Right. Um, one of the, one of the questions I want us to consider about all of our homeworks is that coming of age stories usually have like a moment in which they hinge on, which even if the story itself is telling a whole arc of a character growing up, there's usually like one kind of defining moment that you can point to as this is the moment where things change for them. Like this is where they begin to transition definitively from being a child to being an adult. I mean, I'm curious 
as to where you think, where both of you think that point is in Persepolis? Oh, that's a good question. Hmm. I was struck by two um, two moments in the book, and one is early on where she's talking about when she was a child and she used to talk to God, like had a, a relationship with God, and um, she draws these pictures of like this big billowy cloud being sort of enveloping her, and um, like suddenly... Uh, I, I don't remember what triggers it, but um, eventually she's like, there's no way God would let that happen. And so our relationship is over. Um, and there is that threaded throughout the story. Um, eventually she starts communicating with God again through her mother, um, but not through direct communication. Um, but I think more to the point, the hinging point that you're talking about, Martha, for me it was when she breaks up with Klaus, her boyfriend, she finds him cheating on her and uh, she moves out of the house where she's living with someone who's really hateful toward her. And then she ends up going back to Iran. That felt to me uh, like the moment. Well, and, and she spends uh, six months on the street in between. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, huh. I, I was going to say something know. else, but that there's... might be it. Um... I was going to say, I, I actually feel... Like, I feel like that's a very defining moment for her, but I feel like the point at which the the point at which her her development kind of hinges on for me is right at the end of the first book when the bomb falls on her street mm, and her neighbors and are her friend dies because yeah. that feels like that feels like the first time that it is all kind of real for her and the first time she has mm. to take a step back and really like look at how what is happening like it's not just it's not just a status symbol to have to have a relative be like an insurgent it actually has consequences that i don't know that she'd really considered before then mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. i i was thinking of a much less traumatic moment for her which is simply sure. when her um her mother comes to visit her in austria and um like, she hardly recognizes her mother. Her mother definitely doesn't recognize her. because, And I think that's the moment where she sort of, like, really realizes how much growth she has, both both physically and, and like, mentally and relationship-wise. Um, uh, and and yeah. it's sort of like the first... Because it's, you know, she's she's been away from her parents for so long. You still have, like, the, the relationship in your mind you have with them. But when you see them again after that time and, and realize, like, oh, I'm taller than her now... Before that, she was she had black hair. Now she has gray hair. All the rest of it, um, and her mother treats her more like an adult. That's sort of like, it, it, it's an event that doesn't happen in one sudden go for most people because like we're still living with our parents during that time of development. Um, but for her, since she isn't, it is sort of a like before and after situation. Well, and that's actually that I'm I'm gonna take as a chance to segue into our next one. Um, we can revisit uh, Persepolis in the larger conversation later, but that idea of like our how we are perceived as a as being part of our growth process really makes me want to transition to the house on Mango Street. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> so that was the homework that I assigned. It's a book called The House on Mango Street by Sandra Cisneros, and 
I have actually, I had never read this book. Um, I have a minor in women's studies and um, a master's degree in education. And in both of those spaces, especially talking about culturally relevant curriculum, this book came up a lot, um, but I never managed to read it. Um, it's a, uh, a book of almost uh, vignettes of short short snippets um, and it's told from the perspective of a, a girl named Esperanza and she and her family move into the house on Mango Street in the beginning of the book and throughout the book we uh, as she's growing she's telling these stories about herself and her family and people in the neighborhood and um, as she gets older her views about her family and the house changed drastically at first. It was exciting to have a house of their own and not have to share an apartment or, or stairs in a, in a common living space. And um, as she gets older, uh, she starts to resent the house on Mango Street and starts dreaming and, and planning, how am I going to get out of here? Um, but uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's short, uh, but dense and um, a really beautiful book. Um, Actually, Martha, is this considered like a young adult book or? Um... It's it's actually, it's it sort of floats the line between being young adult and being middle grade. Mm. So I could definitely like see would... giving this to an eighth grader. Yeah, so it it <laughs> usually falls on required reading lists around like seventh and eighth grade. That um, makes sense. Yeah, I, I had yeah, never, I... Oh, go for it, Martha. Oh, I was just going to say, I love this one because I feel like um, Latinx culture is so full of, like, age-defining celebrations that it was really interesting. One of one of the things that I would like to get back to is um, kind of cultural markers of coming of age. Mm -hmm. uh, and I just thought that this was a really interesting pick for me to read as a white person. <laughs> um about kind of a, a facet of the American experience that I did not have. Um, I had not read this one before either, which was a very strange, another very strange gap in my um, experience. Although I have always been more of a, I've always had more of a focus on like high school age literature. So mm -hmm. maybe not so weird. Um, yeah, I, I hadn't read this either and that uh, as we're all expressing was deeply bizarre to me um especially because it's set in <laughs> chicago like you think at some point i would have had to read it like in school um i taught middle school it theoretically should have come up sometime then um i absolutely love this uh i sent kim a text as i was reading it like this is absolutely enthralling uh, i love the <laughs> vignette style of the book i like the structure of like short little impressions that create a whole when you step back and sort of view them is something I really enjoy in um, like any sort of media. Uh, and this one I thought did a great job of it. Um, did either of you read? It's practically, it's practically poetry in yeah. some places. Yeah. yeah, it really, really is. <laughs> Cause like both, both the, like each vignette, is an impression of a larger community, but some of the chapters themselves are deeply impressionistic just in how they're presenting what's happening in the vignette. Um, everything about it I, I loved and was enthralled by and was kicking myself for not having read before. 
Um, <laughs> had you guys read the, uh, or did you read the um, author intro? At the, the My copy had like a 20-page long intro by the author. I didn't. I read this one as a um, an Overdrive book. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. they they occasionally will land you just on the first page of the book. Mm. Sure. I read I read about half of it, <laughs> uh, <laughs> where she's, Sandra Cisneros is talking about her life and her room where she writes and mm-hmm. and like how special and important that is for her as a creative. Right, and and then it goes into like everything she was drawing from her own like life growing up in Chicago to create. Um, you know, the Mango Street culture and and sort of just, like, grabbing this this thing that she saw here and this thing that she heard here um, and, and like, weaving that all together into this complete whole. Um, it, I I enjoyed the intro a lot as well, so I'd, I'd recommend going back and rereading it, you know, in your free time. Okay. <laughs> one of the things that I thought was um, interesting about this one, especially as compared to the other two stories that we looked at um a lot of persepolis i think hinges on uh margie kind of deciding what home means to her and like what it would mean for iran to be her home and in this one it almost feels like esperanza never like she never really feels like the house on mango street is her home um and spends a lot of the book sort of thinking about getting away from that. Yeah. One of the um, things that struck me comparing Persepolis and the house on Mango Street is, you know, uh, Margie is from an upper class family and mm-hmm. Esperanza is from a lower class or from a low income family. And um, just the amount of choice that Margie gets and, uh, her relationship with her parents is on display and um, there are things inherent in having that wealth that uh, is not, not available to Esperanza or the folks in her neighborhood. I mean, but before mm-hmm. the revolution, Margie's going to a French immersion school. She's able to go to, like she goes, uh, uh, her parents go to Turkey on a vacation. They go to Italy. At one point it's mentioned um, she's able to live in Austria Whereas, yeah, like you're saying, none of that is available to Esperanza. Which I think probably contributes a lot to how trapped she feels. Yeah. Mm-hmm. For reasons I can't, yeah, for, for reasons I can't quite put my finger on, as I was reading this, I, I was having weird feeling, like, uh, it, it was like pinging my, the same memories of uh like the wire and especially season four of the wire which is the one um, that deals with the kids um because i i think because both do a good job at creating a very like lived in real sense of like what the neighborhoods are like for kids living there um obviously the house on mango street is not as like horrifically devastating as the wire season four is um but it it both sort of has that like deeply lived in feel. I have never seen the wire, so I can't comment on that. I did find parts of Mango Street to be pretty devastating though. Um particularly and the reason that I transitioned us from Persepolis to 
Mango Street is I was thinking about the scene where she and her friend Sally are um oh are they at a like a street fair? Yeah, I think they're at a carnival. Um, yeah, at the carnival where they where she gets um sexually assaulted. Yeah. Um yeah. and I was just thinking about how like this happens while she's still like by by many definitions something. a child um but is kind of forced to grow up because now she has to deal with the fact that other people perceive her as being of an age where i mean obviously this is never appropriate um but it is very much that attitude of girls and women are as old as we perceive them to be so this is okay um no that's not that's not right pete help me <laughs> um well i like i i think this is related to what you're saying but the vignette with the shoes is one that i'm like I, yes. that that struck me a lot where they they were given some shoes by a neighbor um high heel shoes walked uh like uh, she and some friends were walking um around in them some the the owner of like the corner store was like you need to take those off because you're going to be getting trouble that you don't want to be getting you're going to be getting attention that you don't want to be getting um and eventually like at the end of that vignette they had a situation where they had attention that they didn't want to be getting and they all sort of felt a little gross because of it and got rid of the shoes um and, and that was one of the first vignettes that sort of dealt with her slowly becoming sexualized by her community um simply because she right. was growing up yes um and this yeah this idea that somebody's growth is affect somebody's growth and development is affected by outsiders perception of you like she was not allowed to she was not allowed to experience those shoes and like things that are that should be just sort of frivolous and fun and happy she was not allowed to experience those with joy mm -hmm. because of other people's percep perceptions they became this sort of sexualized symbol yeah yeah sorry i i ended that tonally very oddly um, <laughs> but yeah so she starts she starts this book around like 11 or 12 do we think and then it, it kind of moves through the course of several years i when she gets the job she's 15 because she's told mm. to lie and say that she's 16 That's right um i right. I, <laughs> I i had the thought of uh you know marin was just going through a couple months of looking for a job and got a lot of uh not useful advice about how one could get a job in the 21st century from people who hadn't um <laughs> right uh, and i was just thinking about the scene here where it's like oh yeah your aunt works at this place go lie about your age they'll just give you a job also it's a like where she develops photos right yeah like that's that's a kind of prestigious job especially for someone who's 15 with you know still in high school yeah what i loved about that is that this is still a book that is very commonly read in schools 
and the process of taking your photos to be developed is not something that children have any concept of anymore. Correct. Yeah. I didn't even think about that. Um, I just, I, the last sort of coherent thought I have about Mango Street um, is that I really enjoyed how this book highlights that your friends and like the people that you share common experiences with can change. Mm-hmm. over the course of your childhood and have a pretty hefty impact on you know the way that you grow up like i found that to be an extremely relatable experience about how you know she is friends with the sisters and then she's friends with sally and you know each phase of her life she has these very good friends that don't really translate to the other phases of her life hmm. i i liked how none of them were um ended through like large blow-up confrontations necessarily like some of them did but like it it was a natural sort of like well now we've just lost touch with each other like so and so moved away or now i'm hanging out with this person instead of that person uh which i I think is very much how it works yeah as we change you know especially when you're a child and you're growing up like you, I I am largely not different from year to year anymore. Like I, I, I don't mean to say that I like stay completely the same, but when you're a child and you're like being exposed to the world and learning new things all the time, you you change pretty radically from year to year, and that's fine. Um, but I do frequently think that that means that the people that you relate to and the people that you're friends with. Uh, changes also and when you're a kid that doesn't feel good like it feels like you should be able to be friends forever with people but the reality is that sometimes people change and I I enjoyed meeting the different people that Esperanza was friends with and who she confided in and had fun with um, during different phases of her of her growing up yeah Mm -hmm. Uh, so I am going to move us now to my homework speaking of people who you're friends with and then they move away and you don't see them again that's the segue (laughs) so (laughs) so for this i went back and forth on a lot of different things um and i ended up you know the kind of the obvious on-brand choice for me would have been um a ya book um but i ended up picking a movie called call me by your name may have heard of it uh, it came out in 2017 and was directed by let's see if I can get this get this on one go. Uh Luca Guadagnino. It's definitely Luca. Cool. <laughs> um, uh, this is the story of Elio, a 17-year-old boy growing up in uh, the Italian countryside. Uh, his father is a... He's, he's a professor. He's either a classicist <laughs> or an archaeologist or an art historian. Yes. But yeah, like, so his, not father, his father is a professor of some kind. <laughs> um, the movie takes place in 1983. Uh, and 24-year-old Oliver... Uh, comes to stay with Elio's family over the summer because he's studying under Elio's dad. Uh, And during the course of this incredibly idyllic and sun-soaked summer, uh, Elio and Oliver develop a relationship. 
Uh, they go to Rome for a while in one of the like most lovely little vacational interludes ever. Uh, and then at the end of the summer, Oliver leaves. Um, and at, during the winter of, I think, you know, the movie ends uh, in Christmas time of the same year, I believe, with Elio finding out that Oliver is getting married. Uh, so the, you know, the, the, not a lot happens in this movie. Um, it is very character driven rather than plot driven. Um, but it is about Elio kind of learning about himself, the relationships that he has. Um, at one point he, uh, fools around with a girl who lives in the, in the village. Um, but really discovering the feelings that he has for Oliver and exploring those. Uh, Pete, I know that you had not seen this movie before. Correct. What did you think? Um, I enjoyed it a lot. Uh, I have two frivolous opinions uh, after watching it, and then some deeper ones. Um, the frivolous ones were, uh, I am all in on Timothy Chalamet playing Paul Atreides <laughs> in the new Dune movie um, by Denis Villeneuve, uh, because I had not seen him in anything. Seeing him in this, I think he'll do a great job. Um, he was in... Real quick sidebar, he was in Call Me By Your Name, and he plays a teenage, or he played a teenage dirtbag in Lady Bird in the same year, and that was very confusing for wow. me. Wow. <laughs> wow. Huh. Yeah, I'm, I'm very excited for him to be uh, Paul Atreides. Um, the other thought I had was that, uh, so the director, uh, Gua, uh, Guadagnino, let, let's go Guadagnino. <laughs> Um, also did Suspiria, and while the movies are radically different, they also felt similar in a way where, um, up until the very end of Suspiria, when he puts the red filter on, uh, everything is very, like, luxurious. Um, he is not in a rush in any scene. Um, and, and I don't mean that as a knock, like, he is, like, he and, and you through him are just enjoying spending time with these characters, sort of immersing yourself in the world that they're in, immersing yourself in the, in like the, in this case, the burgeoning relationships between the two. Um, and just like the incredibly idyllic life in the, um, I think Tuscan, uh, Lombardic something, Northern Italian I was countryside. Say the, the, um, the synopsis I'm looking at says that they're in Lombardy, Italy. Okay, so whatever the adjectival version of Lombardy is. Um, <laughs> I, I Like I said, I, I really enjoyed this. Um, nothing happens, and that's fine. <laughs> uh, and it's beautiful to watch. It's like nothing and... happens, but for Elio, everything happens. Yes, like... yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and then, uh, you know, you had Sufjan doing some music, so... That's always good. Ah, that That's song good. breaks my heart. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Have you seen this movie before? I had not seen the movie, but I had read the book. Um, oh. And the book is uh, is outstanding. And I was just, I had read the book about a year ago. I was amazed how well I remembered the book and mm. what had happened. And the movie is very... Uh, very similar to the book. <clears throat> I don't think there's any big omissions or additions. And um, I'll also say I had a hard time watching the movie because there are so many feels. <laughs> like, <laughs> yes. 
and it's hard to watch, you know, a teenager sort of uh, becoming sexual and, and figuring things out and they're, they're heartbroken. And, you know, it's just, it was like, oh, Elio, I'm so sorry. <laughs> like, it'll get better when you're older, I promise. But yeah, <laughs> it's just so intense when you're, you know, when you're that age. And I thought the movie really captured all of, all of that. Um, so. I I was shocked at how um like I uh, coming into this movie I knew it was like you know a, a coming of age story all the rest of this um just based on what Timothy Chalamet looks like and and how he was you know appearing in the first couple scenes I was shocked at how aggressive he was in it he was very he was the one very much initiating the relationship um a, and that is very much not what I was expecting I, I don't know that they could have done it any other way. Without it being, like, creepy? Um, well, this movie, it did get a lot of backlash about the fact that Elio is 17 and Oliver is 24. Yeah. Um, and a lot of people were like, would you have felt the same way if Elio was a girl? Which I think is a valid question, um, I did kind of take my cues on how to feel about that from uh, queer movie critics. Um, like people, uh, you know, gay men who were reviewing the film because I figured it's their experience that's being reflected and not mine. Um, and in general, I heard very positive things from that community about it. So I think that there's a discussion to have, certainly, about the fact that there's this huge age difference and Oliver's an adult and Elio is not. But yeah, Pete, I don't know that the story works if Elio is not the aggressor yeah, in I, the relationship. I, I don't disagree. I was just very much surprised by it. Sure. <clears throat> but yeah, I, I agree, Kim, completely. I think that the movie gets the fact that teenagers feel so much all the time <laughs> and everything they feel is the most they've ever felt before. <laughs> <Correct>. <laughs> uh, um, which I thought made parts of it almost uncomfortable to watch. Like the, the movie ends with this very intense close up on Elio's yes. face <laughs> as he's crying after having this devastating conversation with Oliver. Cause I'm sure that part of him was still like, we can be together because, mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and to, to hear, to find out that Oliver is getting married and probably also the movie doesn't really get into this, but to find out that Oliver's getting married to a woman mm -hmm. was also probably devastating. Um, and then, you end the movie on him just weeping while yeah. there's snow falling outside. Like, I don't know if there's a more perfect expression of teenage feelings. As, as Sufjan is playing. Than that close-up. Yes, as Sufjan Stevens' uh, Skies Over Gideon is playing. Well, I will say in the book, the final scene is Elio and Oliver meeting in person like 30 or 40 years later. Later. Hmm. And oh, they both married women and had families and they uh like meet up and talk. <laughs> um so 
Huh. I actually think I preferred the movie, the movie's ending, uh, but there is more of a bow tied on it uh, in the book. That's interesting, considering the conversation that Elio has with his dad. I, I was thinking the, the same where thing. It's, where it's sort of implied that his father might be closeted, mm-hmm. um, but has decided to, like, he finds joy uh, in his wife and his family, and so he's just decided that this is how his life is going to be. So knowing that that's how the book ends actually makes that a much more interesting scene. Not that it wasn't great to begin with, but it it gives it a bit more of a um, punch, I guess. Mm -hmm. I I was also picking up on that from, uh, and Michael Stuhlbarg played his father and was absolutely phenomenal. Um, It is, it is a capital crime. (laughs) Schoolbarg <laughs> does not get did not get in a supporting actor nomination. Oh, he was so good for this role. <laughs> he, he was in two other movies that year, in which I, I'm blanking on what what they were now. But all three of them, it's like, oh, he was incredible in that. He was incredible in that. Um, yeah, he he deserved it for that role. Um, and that that scene, I was also thinking that you, you know, Martha, like what you were saying, it was probably the case. Um, I thought, he, like, both his parents were such a great example of, like, supporting parents. Like, Parenting 101, be like these people. Yes, I was I, yeah. I do wonder if he could have used maybe slightly more parental supervision. Mm-hmm. I don't know that I would have sent my 17... I don't know that I would have sent my 17-year-old off to Rome unsupervised with a graduate student for a weekend. <laughs> <laughs> who and who they knew like they were dating yes um but it was also 1983 so right well and, and i had that thought too like when he's just smoking in the house it's like you're 17 and smoking in the house but also it's 1983 and it's italy so <laughs> and you're in italy yeah. yeah um so i'd like to turn our attention now to some of our kind of overarching discussion questions one of the things that I was really interested in was the fact that none of us picked stories with straight white protagonists. Um, across the board, we have a Latinx girl, an Iranian girl, and a gay t- and a gay boy. So technically, none of these characters are going through experiences that mirrored our own. However, one of the kind of defining features of a coming of age story is that is a universality of it. So I was wondering if you guys had any thoughts about the fact that all three of these stories are about characters who are very different from us, but I personally still felt a pretty strong connection to a lot of elements of the story. One thing that was Kim... that a question? Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> one, one thing, Kim, you were talking about with Call Me By Your Name is that, like, it was almost uncomfortable to watch because Elio is feeling all of the feelings because he's a teenager. And it's like, it doesn't matter. That's an example where, like, it doesn't matter whom he's falling in love with. He's falling in love with somebody, which is, like, and and is a teenager trying to just mm. understand relationships in general. Um, yeah. And, and that itself is very universal. Yeah, I think for me, um, especially with Call Me By Your Name uh, and the sort of the dynamics of like your first love, um, 
for me, that's just such a, it's a huge part of who I am. Like the first love, I was older than Ellie. I was in college, but, um, you know, I felt those feelings like so intensely and I still think about that person and that experience. And, um, I just, I relate so strongly with it. I'm like, Oh yes, I, I know what that feels like. And I'm also on the other end of it. So it's like, Oh, you make a bunch of cringy mistakes and it actually does it gets better and you learn and you mature. Uh, and so I think that's satisfying for me just to say like, oh, I've been there now. I'm a little bit uh, wiser. <laughs> well, and I think one of the cool things that a coming of age story can do is provide that sort of backdrop of universality as a door to reading diverse stories. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Like having that, having that backbone that is kind of identifiable to every, to, well, not everyone, um, but having that backbone of an experience that is generally identifiable to people, I think allows you to, to tell a story that in all other aspects is not familiar. So it's like, Mm. we under, we know the bones of Margie's story and then we also get to learn about Margie as a character who is different from us. Yeah. While and still and, being able to relate to what she's going through. Yeah. I, I was also thinking about Persepolis because there are so many scenes, um, especially when, when she's a teenager where even though the specifics are different, the overarching, I like theme is something that you can relate to. Like, having friends or like you know struggling to make friends making friends realizing you're not like actually that have that much in common with them because they're a bunch of like nihilist punks uh and and you know sort of moving away from there or um uh you know sort of disappointment um with who you thought people were and then it turns out that they're not like there's her specific situation is is you know, vastly different than any of our lived experiences, but she's going through situations that we can relate to very easily. Persepolis is also interesting um, because it deals with world events that, I mean, I didn't know a lot about, but things that happened in a way that um, Mango Street and Call Me By Your Name don't really. Mm-hmm. So it's like Persepolis has that added um, not it has like an added layer of verifiability because mm-hmm. there are events that we can like look up and read about mm-hmm. that now we yes. have like a personal <laughs> like a personal insight into. Mm-hmm. Which is I guess neither here nor there, but just something interesting that I was thinking about while you were talking, Pete. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it makes it maybe a little more immediate or, or a little more, um, like, real. Yeah, it gives us a framework that I kind of... It gives us a framework that I don't know that I have with... Particularly Call Me By Your Name, which is kind of just this side of a fairy tale... Except that the feelings, 
Except I, that the, the emotions in it are so painfully real. I, I was thinking, um, and, and for obvious reasons, I think Oliver does about four hours of work in his six weeks uh, spent in Italy. All right. <laughs> What's up with that? <laughs> he spends the rest of the time running around in sneakers without socks on. <laughs> and very short shorts. And, very short shorts. <laughs> uh, apparently they, they needed some uh, special effects to correct uh, wardrobe malfunctions. I have heard that Correct. as well. <laughs> <laughs> to which I say, where is that director's cut? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I think uh, Persepolis, but for me also, well, all of them actually, um, because those developmental stages of being a child and a teenager and a young adult are very universal. Um, I just developed a lot of empathy for the characters and, or had a lot of it. I could relate with them. And then, yeah, that really is, it made me more curious about uh, the revolution in Iran and especially the time before the revolution. Cause I didn't realize um, that it was a very open country and very modern in some ways. So um uh, it's, it's fascinating. I, I don't, I can't think of a whole lot of other genres where um, I'm hooked in and can relate so easily to the characters um, and also learn about history or um, a place where people live that I just don't have any experience with. Mm-hmm. Well, that is going to wrap up that discussion for us. Kim, thank you again so much for joining us. Uh, this was super interesting. Um, if you would like people to be able to find you on the internet, where can they do that? Sure. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at, at Kim Schles, or my personal website is kimschlesinger.com. Cool. We will link to that in our blog post. Uh, you can find me on all the places at Magical Martha. Um, subscribe to my newsletter, tinyletter.com backslash Magical Martha. Uh, a sneak preview of my next installment is going to be very heavily related to the Twitter thread that I was running today about my pet theory that all actors are playing the same role in every movie that they're in. Yes. Uh, I, on, I, as an example on Twitter, I track the life and times of Bruce Willis from Look Who's Talking through the nice. Die Hard franchise <laughs> up through uh, Armageddon and then The Fifth Element. <laughs> A friend of mine weighed in on the life and times of Anne Hathaway. It's all very good. <laughs> I will link to all of it. Uh, get it in my newsletter. Pete, where can people find you? Uh, I'm on Twitter at Pico3000, P-I-K-O 3000. Uh, as usual, politics and pop culture, and so far no overarching vast conspiracy theories of either of those things. You can find the show at our home on the web, homeworkpodcast.com. You can find us and engage with us on Twitter at D-Y-D-Y-H-Podcast. Uh, and Facebook. If you search for Did You Do Your Homework, I think we're the only page that pops up. Uh, You can tell your friends to download us at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play. Uh, Basically, wherever they download their other podcasts, they can find ours. So clearly, they should be doing that. Uh, And leave us a review. Uh, We could benefit from some publicity. And since we are certainly not paying for any of that, 
uh, it would be really nice if our 30 listeners could step up. Um, Pete, are we, are we ready to talk about our next episode's theme? Yes. Uh, next episode, we're talking cool. about nostalgia in media. Uh, friend of the show, Marin Hagman, is coming back as part of her... Yeah sinister plan to get me to watch meet me in st louis she is assigning meet me in st louis um i'm assigning pleasantville which is one of my top 10 movies ever made really uh and yes Hmm. i love this movie so much uh and pete what have you picked for us i am going to go with an album uh my homework assignment is the 2006 album Boys and Girls in America by the band The Hold Steady. Uh, I also have two extra credit songs to listen to, also by The Hold Steady, but from different album. Uh, the two songs are Positive Jam and Certain Songs. They're both off the 2004 album Almost Killed Me. Uh, but the main homework assignment is Boys and Girls in America by The Hold Steady. That's going to do it for us. That's going to do it for us today. Thank you all so much for listening. Class dismissed.